Hello, Bulak listeners. We're taking a bit of a break this summer, but this is one of our favorite older episodes. Carl Sharrow, who tweets as Carl remarks, is one of the funniest people we know and a very sharp commentator on Middle East affairs. A collection of his tweets was published by Saki Books in 2018. He was also our very first guest on Bulak. We talked to him about soccer, politics, alter egos, and finding the ideal online enemy. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. Great. Well, look, so this is, a, you are our first guest on the podcast. Um, oh my God. Yeah, you're our inaugural guest. So, uh, welcome to episode 17 of the Bullock podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay, and uh, with me today, as always, is Marsha Links Quayley, uh, the creator of Arab Lit in English blog. Hi, Marsha. Hello, Ursula. And we also have a wonderful addition today. Architect, writer, blogger, and humorist Carl Sharrow is calling in with us from London. We'll be talking with Carl about a new book of his that's coming out from Saki Books um, next week, and that is a collection of some of his best tweets and jokes, and is entitled... And then God created the Middle East and said, let there be breaking news. Hi, Carl. Hi. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, you are the first guest that we've had on the podcast, and we're really excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. And you're two of my favorite people on the Internet. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to this. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So, Carl has out next month his first book, right? It's your first book? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I've written bits and pieces in other books before, but this is sort of, um, yeah, you could call it my first book. I mean, in fact, it's not even my, my book because it came out, the author name is Carl Remarks, not Carl Sharrow, oh. who's my alter ego that I absolutely detest. <laughs> that you detest? No, you have to tell us why do you detest him, because the rest of us are fans. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm really jealous. It's a Superman Clark Kent <laughs> thing going on here. <laughs> so when, when did this alter ego um, come into existence? Um, I think it would have been around 2011, you know, when I uh, started uh, blogging and uh, going on Twitter and stuff like that. And I needed, uh, uh, you, you know, I mean, being on the on on social media doesn't make any sense if there's no pun in your name. So it took me about six months to come up with this uh, pun, Carl remarks, and yeah, that's when it, when he was born. And did you have the the uh, icon from the beginning, or did that come later? No, just uh, it's kind of I'm I'm really like the opposite of an established digital brand. <laughs> it's like I was looking for an icon for years and kind of kept trying different things. And uh, I had done, meanwhile, I had done this. Um, they're called Phoenician cartoons based on two Phoenician characters, because you know I'm Lebanese, and it was kind of a whole thing was a vehicle to make fun of this Lebanese claim to have invented everything, 
and um, I and then eventually I kind of figured out I can use one of them as uh, the icon, and then the character was was fully born then. Although now you're Saint George, or have you changed that back? That's just temporary. That's just for the World Cup. I was looking for a symbol because <laughs> I support England, but I wanted a symbol, you know, that people from the Levant and all over the world can come around. And it's a Muslim Christian thing as well. Uh, so, yeah, that's what St. George is here for. But but judging by previous uh, England performances in the World Cup, I'm going to change it back very soon. Wait, and, you, and you've supported England exclusively from the beginning? Or do you, uh, do you sort of like have other favorites when England isn't playing? Oh no, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm big on uh, all Global South teams and particularly African uh, teams. Uh, so yesterday I was doing this thing on Twitter, like when your team goes out from the World Cup, you start coming up with this random system for whom you support next. Right. So it's like I went on holiday once there. I went, dated someone from that country. I like the color of the flag. And then someone gave me the best answer is always support the team with the lower GDP. Yeah, I saw both that and the response. Yeah, I have to say that especially whenever there's a lineup where like a formerly colonized country faces off against the, the former colonial power, like that's a, those are very easy ones in which to pick your side. There's a particular satisfaction, I think. Um, in if if the former colony wins. Yes. Yeah, I know, but it's you. You go ahead. You go ahead. I was just going to say that someone here told me. Someone here in Morocco told me yesterday. I'm rooting for anyone except France. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But but I gotta tell you, I find it very complex because teams like France and England and to a lesser extent Germany, they have you know a lot of players who are from. Uh, uh, immigrant parents or, or kind of of, of uh, different origin originally and uh, so it's kind of I'm torn about it because I'm really excited about the England team because it's a young diverse multicultural team and uh, that's a very positive thing to me so you know it's it, you end up in this situation where you're handing the colonial guilt to the to the to, to, to the people who come from countries that were colonized by england which which is a bit unfair yeah i know it does get complicated i think that the other factor is also not just the, the teams you're running rooting for but the ones you're rooting against so that's sort of part of my algorithm too is just the ones that i really don't like i was really bummed that saudi arabia beat egypt yeah that was a that was terrible. I was really hoping for a nice blot in the other direction. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was a heartbreak for me as well, especially that I've been like a, a Liverpool fan since the early 80s. And Mohamed Salah is like the best thing to happen to us for years and years. Uh, but they'll come back. They'll come back. Yeah. And here in Morocco, you know, there's been a few it's been a kind of disappointing run too although at least people were pretty happy with the final like 2-2 game against Spain like it was a good game and Morocco scored and people sort of felt like you know they could be proud of the team but they also are, there's like a lot a lot of discussion of how they were robbed and of like the referees which I haven't gotten into that much like followed in that much detail, but there's like call, like appeals to FIFA and like there's just a lot of resentment over a lot of can I, can I yeah can I, can I just put my cards on the table? I have to say, like when it comes to politics and everything, I'm a very cold, rational person. But when it comes to football, 
I turned into the kind of the most like conspiracy theory minded person in the world. I was genuinely so upset about Morocco losing a kind of drawing against Spain when they genuinely deserved to win. I'm like, this has to be a conspiracy. They're out to get the North African teams. It was really that upsetting. So I totally feel them. Yeah, that's the way. But I mean, I guess my feeling is just that soccer is unjust. Like, overall, the best teams don't win. There's like so much kind of that's arbitrary and just sometimes unfair about it. Like, that's kind of the appeal of it. It's closer to life than some sports. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree about that. I think it's an astute observation because as well, like, it's it's always possible for a team to play very well and not win in football, unlike, say, basketball, where yeah. you're scoring so much. There's that, that, I used to play basketball, you know, that generally doesn't tend to happen. And yeah, there's, and I think this is what makes football much more dramatic and makes us all, you know, who like it so, so addicted to it is there's this, uh, yeah, absolutely a kind of an inherent uh, uh, tendency for unjust results. Uh, uh, which is, uh, yeah, I, I suppose it's part of the appeal. So if you and uh, and Karl Remarks are different people, do you have different opinions on the World Cup as well? Or do you share that? <laughs> you, you know, this is actually, it's like, um, I, I sort of, I, I blame myself for not making it very clear, but would that, that would have been explaining the joke. Like when I joined Twitter, I should have said, everything that this guy says, you have to take it with a pinch of salt. It's all irony. It's all, and uh, it doesn't kind of, some people still don't get that. And because I say outrageous things, they tend to think that's what I actually believe uh, personally. When actually I'm just, you know, Carl Sharro is this geeky guy uh, who's very shy, who doesn't have strong opinions. And then that guy kind of possesses me. I think I actually have to walk <laughs> <laughs> into into telephone booths, uh, and which luckily we still have in London, and change into my Phoenician costume when I want to tweet. And then that guy kind of starts with his outrageous stuff. But I, I think the whole point was from the beginning was that this is a, um, a kind of a performance in a way. So he's able to say things that I, I wouldn't normally say. But also is, again, there's another dimension to it where I don't know if you know about these things. There are people who hound me about my uh, uh, identity on on uh, Twitter. So you're like, uh, how do you say you're Arab when you're actually a Syrian? How do you say you're a Phoenician when? So this is kind of policing of the multiple identities of Karl remarks. And it kind of, they don't see, and I've actually explained it at points. It's part of the whole thing is playing around with this notion of identity and creating different personas. And I think that's what we're supposed to be on, on, on social media. I, I don't think we necessarily have to be kind of earnest and uh, kind of revelatory, if that's a word. Is that a word? Yes. Revelatory? Yeah. It's a word, but I definitely don't know, don't know how to pronounce it. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, I mean, I think what you're describing, though, most people or a lot of people are putting on a performance on social media, whether they admit it or not, like people's real selves and their digital selves don't line up often. And I mean, maybe you're being, you know, clearer about it, but uh, that's sort of a facet of, of, of the whole of just being online is that you're some version of yourself. 
Yeah, you're also putting on a superhero costume <clears throat> rather than um, a troll costume. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't describe him as a superhero. He's a very pathetic superhero. I don't know what his superpower would be. Uh, his superpower uh, is making like, us laugh. His superpower is <laughs> what? Yeah. No, I think that's that's pretty clear. Yeah. But so if yeah. you're if you're if every time, I, so I'm imagining you sort of going into the phone booth and emerging in your Phoenician outfit. But that must be several times a day. So you you treat pretty regularly. <laughs> He probably tweets as often as I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the truth of it is, um, um, I, I actually kind of I tweet on a window that coincides with my vaping breaks. Um, um, <laughs> it's a much, it's a much more mundane aspect to it. It's not, it's not that I'm sitting there all day long, but it's kind of almost. If you, if you notice, it's almost like on an hourly basis. Um, uh, yeah, so it, it coincides with my vaping uh, breaks. But it's a bummer to keep changing costume. <laughs> I bet. So do you have any other uh, great enemies out there uh, other than uh, Nicholas Talib? Oh, yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you about that, yeah. Who has blocked you know, me, sadly, so I don't even know what he's saying to you. Yeah, I mean, I... You know, can I tell you something? Like for a long time on Twitter, I was like searching for uh, an, a, a kind of an arch rival, you know, an arch nemesis, <laughs> and uh, it wasn't working out because nobody would kind of cooperate with me. Nobody would like cared enough to be my arch rival, right? It's like everybody's got more important people to antagonize. And I was for a long time, I'm like, I really need an enemy, and he was like a blessing. <laughs> This is absolutely like all his opinions, all that he believes, all and not just from this kind of post-2016 uh, Trump turn. It was from the first time that people started saying to me, oh, you're Lebanese, you should read this book by this great Lebanese guy that's called The Black Swan. It's amazing. It blew my mind. It's, and then I started reading it, and I couldn't get past like three, four pages. It was just so wrong and it's one of those books that you know from the first three pages that it's not going to get any better and you kind of figure it out right but it was this kind of formulaic uh pseudo uh, uh analytical pseudo philosophical uh, way of coming up of a, a a theory of everything that um you know it's absolutely shabby and and then I was kind of, I left it, dropped the book, and then out of nowhere, this guy kind of pops out to become, like, my number one uh, arch rival, which I'm really pleased about. Wait, so how did it start? I, I'm sure I was not there to witness the beginning. I, I'm personally not sure how it started myself. I think I sort of, like, wrote a spoof about him uh, two or three years ago, about just kind of the... The, the general uh, pretentiousness of his uh, persona. And uh, he kind of uh, rekindled or kindled rather this uh, animosity by just kind of literally like trolling me on. So it wasn't anything I was initiating. He, he'd, he'd get sort of, he'd go away for a few days and then come back against me with some kind of line. And I think what really uh, pissed him off and uh, this is again back to the identity conversation is um, th there are kind of some neo-Assyrian, neo-Phoenician uh, 
block of his followers on Twitter. And I don't know when these things come. I mean, who, who knew in 2018 that would be like neo-Assyrian trolls. Uh, <laughs> trolls. <laughs> and, and, and they kind of took issue with something that I said kind of completely incidentally once on uh, Twitter when I said, you know, I'm, my background is Syriac, but uh, I identify equally as someone of Aramean descent and I identify as an Arab as well because I didn't know that you had to actually pick one. I thought we can all be multiple things, right? And then for some reason that thing snowballs and uh, Nicholas Nassim Talib or whatever his uh, right sequence of Nassim Nicholas Talib, whatever, he's, he's, he's kind of so goes after me that I'm supposedly the kind of the, the Arabist, you know, the, the, I'm the number one Arabist out there. I'm the person who's upholding uh, pan-Arab nationalism, and which is, couldn't be further from the truth, right? But I've never corrected him because I was like, this is highly enjoyable. I just want to see him dig more. I'm trying try to portray me as this arch-Bathist uh, supervillain <laughs> who's intent on smashing up the kind of rekindling and neo-Phoenician identity in the Levant which was like utterly absurd because I've always been kind of completely vocal against, uh, you know, um, official Arab identity and how it repressed minorities and how it came to being. But he's never, which says a lot about his character, he's never actually wanted to really engage me. He was just like really interested in portraying me as this uh, super Arabist. What I really find hilarious about that is my name actually is uh, Aramaic. Whereas his name is Arabic, <laughs> and and, he, and he's kind of the one who's claiming to be the 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 kind of the in, the inheritor of the Aramean legacy in the Levant, where I'm supposedly the the Arab colonizer. So there you go. That's that's our university explained in a minute. Is it one of his things that Lebanese is not really Arabic? I mean, this is what started pissing me off about him originally. When he started with this totally absurd thesis that Lebanese people don't actually speak Arabic. And, and and there's nothing Arabic about our language, apparently. It's purely a derivation of uh, Aramaic and other influences. And he goes further by saying before uh, satellite broadcasting and all of that, it would have been impossible for a Lebanese and a Saudi to communicate. I mean, it's that extreme. Right. Before when? Before satellite broadcasting, before people were watching each other's I TV. I thought the, the Saudis were going to Beirut to party well before satellite broadcasting, not but, to mention, like, I mean, they contrast dating much further back than that, but I thought, uh, I thought uh, they, they were all, uh, all going to cabarets in Beirut in the 50s and 60s. I mean, they must have had translators or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't see how else they would have communicated, you know? And I think, I mean, kind of, I don't want to dwell too much on it, but he makes it really absurd because he always makes these, like, outrageous claims. Like, he says, um, this word that we use in Lebanese is, is not Arabic. We use this word, whereas in Arabic it's that word, right? Mm. And then someone goes and does some research, comes back and says, actually, that word is actually Arabic. Um, and so I find really hilarious that someone would be so committed to this uh, uh, utterly insane conception of, uh, Levantine history and culture to, to, to kind of is so zealously trying to purge any sort of uh, Arab uh, influence 
from from the region, uh, which is, uh, I mean, why? You know, you can always kind of critique the, the the politics of Arabism, and I've been always opposed to Baathism and all kind of versions of of, of pan-Arabist uh, 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 kind of uh, hegemony. But it's like to kind of invent this this new mythology of a uh, pure uh, Lebanese identity that's untouched by uh, Arab influences 1,500 years after Arabs first showed up in the Levant is, I find this totally absurd. Well, and not to mention, I mean, so you're literally saying, oh, this stuff I'm speaking, not Arabic. It's like as if I was like, I'm from California, we don't really speak English there, I just speak Californian. <laughs> Like, it may sound like English to you, you may think you recognize some words, but no, 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 this, this, is, this is our original language. Yeah, and it's like he's so impervious to critique, you know. There have been people who've kind of like done a proper job, unlike me. I mean, I'm so petty because I've never kind of, <laughs> I've never kind of like engaged on a serious debate as well from my side to say, no, this is actually very... So every time he'd get on something and... And, and he'd accuse me of something, I'll, I'll retaliate like by drawing a cartoon of him as a Twitter egg or something like that. Right? <laughs> I want to keep it at that level because that's, that's kind of his, his, his trolling level. And uh, some other people have actually done the work and they've actually proved that everything he's saying is utterly nonsensical. But then he gets on his horse about, um, uh, which was, by the way, not an Arabian horse. It's a... <laughs> Pure blood, Lebanese Phoenician horse, yeah. Phoenician horse is way more elegant than an Arabian horse, <laughs> and and they never had to do any kind of uh, 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 labor. They only exist for shopping and and and, and picnics and stuff like that. So he gets on his horse, uh, uh, right, and 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 kind of insists on uh, this this singularly. Um, irrational interpretation of, of, of the region and its culture. But he, he somehow really likes you because, you know, in the way that Lex Luthor really likes Superman. Me, he, the <laughs> first time I mentioned him, I was blocked and now I haven't been able to see what he says since. But he's very committed to his relationship with you. Yeah, which I find really worrying. I mean, even to the extent once he, uh, uh, he uh, somebody said something to him about me and he's like... Uh, no, he's funny. So I think to give him his credit, like he knows, he's, he, he, he definitely appreciates uh, humor and, and he was honest about it. And look, at the end of the day, I'm, um, I'm not one of those people who kind of would favor uh, having a, a kind of um, dominant narrative that people can challenge. I'm all for people to, you know, think outside the box and promote different uh, uh, theories about the region and all that kind of thing. Um, but I think if you're going to do that thing, you have your responsibility to be um, robust. I'm turning a bit serious now, so this is Carl Sharrow speaking, not Carl Remark. <laughs> okay. I, think when you're doing, I think when you're doing that, you have a responsibility to be uh, rigorous and robust in your research um, because there's probably some truth to the notion that there's a, a legacy of a previous cultures that predates the Arabs and the Levant that needs to be understood in a proper historical context. And you look at things like the fact that most uh, city and town names in Lebanon, Syria, Palestine 
there uh, still retain uh, their uh, Aramaic origin. So it's a very fascinating um, kind of era of our history and a set of influences of our history that deserve to be examined properly and even understanding why the Lebanese dialects is, uh, or the Levantine dialects even are uh, quite distinct in their own way from uh, Gulf dialects and how they retain some of the influences. I think that's all very fascinating stuff. I and mean, I would hate to kind of all for it to be forgotten under the name of a, of a hegemonic, uh, you know, Arab identity. But when you're going to do that, you have the responsibility to do it uh, in a rigorous and robust and academically uh, uh, kind of valid manner. And I, I genuinely wish he'd, he'd take that advice on board and, and engage in this in a more serious manner. Yes, well, Twitter is, you know, you know, full of rigorous and responsible <laughs> academic debates. I mean, that was one of the other things I meant to ask you about is just how you find, because you used to blog and then you very much made the transition to Twitter, right? I mean, that's sort of your, your where you write almost exclusively nowadays. Yeah, I, I can't remember when it was exactly. I think it was in 2015. So I, I used to blog very um, kind of... Uh, frequently um, and uh, I think this is how you know people started finding out about when I started writing satire in particular um, you know I think this is when people kind of started uh, knowing about my work uh, and then the transition happened I don't think it happened um, by choice really because um, there was just a kind of a period where I don't know what happened either my writing became really atrocious or um, people just stopped reading that much. It's with kind of like the level of engagement uh, compared to the, the kind of the, the, the energy that I was putting in writing wasn't fulfilling anymore. Uh, so I stopped the blogging, although I kind of, the plan was that I keep writing for uh, other publications, you know, like I've written for um, The Atlantic or political or people like that. But then somehow I kind of lost the momentum and uh, I don't know, maybe I think ultimately I had kind of finished what I wanted to say through that um, satiric, satirical writing medium at the time. And it was probably time for a fresh start. I still think of Twitter as the kind of the stopgap until I know what the other thing is going to be, um, which I always had hoped would be something of a longer format. So maybe, a, you know, a book, a bit more uh, kind of... Um, original material more than the one that, that, that I'm releasing next week. Um, but somehow it ends up Twitter becoming like that actually that outlet. Uh, so it's through things like I'd put out, uh, you know, images or cartoons or uh, short videos sometimes. Uh, it just became kind of a medium where all of that happens as opposed to the blog. And, and I'm still not sure it's whether this is a kind of a general transformation that's happened or it was just something that I chose to do. But here we are. Well, it certainly fits with, I mean, it's a format that, that works for basically bon mot, which you're like very good at doing. So, it, so, so the, the sort of brevity and wit of a lot of the, thing, of the remarks that you make works well on Twitter, I think. And then I love the images, and that also works well. Yeah, Twitter, the thing that Twitter is probably best for is humor. Yeah, no, I think it's really great for that because it's not—it's not definitely something that doesn't work on, like Facebook, for example. Although there's there's you know, um, 
ways of doing it. But, but, but I think what's really great is you have an amazing audience out there. Even you kind of like do the most esoteric historical reference, there'll be some people who'd actually get it. And this is what I love about it. And uh, it's a great medium. I mean, trolls aside. <laughs> but I think the trolls can also sometimes be the straight man, you know, the, the person who insists that what you're saying is not a joke. That can oh, yeah. sometimes make it even funnier. At least for those yeah, yeah, of us no. in the audience. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's so much of that stuff that happens. Although I do feel sorry for some of them sometimes. But uh, it's, it's like a, it's a cruel world. It's really, Twitter is a cruel world. But, but it's, it's, I mean, yeah, I, it's got those sides. But on the other hand, it's genuinely kind of very fulfilling, I find. If you make this kind of obscure historical reference, and then, I don't know, even if it's like 10 people who actually got it and, and like figured out what the joke is, it's rewarding enough. And um, because it's like we all kind of nurture all these relationships on and somehow we find the people that, we, you know, we're predestined to interact with. Uh, and I think it's brilliant. Long it may last. Yeah. And then I'm sure there's the satisfaction of making a joke and like tens of thousands of people think it's funny. I mean, you get to, you get to crack up a much bigger room. I think there's that, that also must be pretty, pretty thrilling. And I, and I want to turn to the book and maybe what we'll do is we'll ask you to read a couple lines from it. Um, oh. but first I want to just tell you, uh, something about when I was reading it last weekend. So I got the mm -hmm. book in the mail and I was reading it on a Sunday afternoon and I'm sort of laughing out loud to myself every now and then. And my nearly six year old son keeps like, every time I laugh, he's like, turns to me, he's like, what, what's so funny? You know, that sort of like frustrated curiosity that little kids have, which I can actually remember from my own childhood, like really wanting to know why my dad would be laughing reading a book. And each time I had to be like, sweetie, like, I'm sorry, this would just take so, like, I don't think I can explain this one to you. And he'd be like, oh, okay. And then finally I found one and I was like, wait, I think you could get this one. And um, so it's in your series of jokes about like so-and-so walks into a bar. Yeah. And it made me laugh so much. And it's the one about Um Kulsum. So... I was like, there's this Egyptian singer, and she sort of sang in this style, and then your joke, of course, is Um Kulsum walks into a bar, she walks into a bar, she walks into a bar, she walks into a bar, and I've now taught my six-year-old to perform this joke, and he's really good at delivering it. That's amazing. hilarious. That's a, you have to upload that on Twitter. Uh, maybe. Maybe I'll make a little recording of him of him doing it. He's at an age where, like, being able to get and say a joke is like one of the most exciting things in his day. So he's pretty yeah, happy. Yeah, that, that is amazing. I would love to hear it. I mean, if you can upload the recording also, that would be great. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. Right. And I think part, yeah. of the, part of the experience for me of reading it as somebody who has been with you there on Twitter for a long time, I think, uh, is, you know, I was rooting for some of my favorites. Like when I saw the first Monopoly board show up, the Lebanon Monopoly board, I was like, oh, yeah. the Egypt one better be in there. You know, the, where it's all go directly to yeah. jail. And it, it was, so I, I was pleased. So part of it was me reading it, rooting for my favorites to be there. And the, the enjoyment of recognition. I remember that one. I liked that one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is, this is kind of the discussions that we were having when we first thought, uh, like me and Saki publishers, who are great, who, who kind of pitched this to me, which, by the way, I have to say this publicly, the person who first came up with the idea of the book is Marsha, 
And <laughs> oh, didn't even tell me that. How Marsha is 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 so terribly modest. I know, I know, but it was her idea, and she was somebody's gonna make it, somebody's gotta do it. And I, I think, I don't know, but probably the people at Saki maybe kind of finally relented. I don't know how it came about, but um, they kind of, uh, you know, pitched it to me after that. And we were discussing, it was precisely that, how do we kind of, because obviously you can't have, I've tweeted, I don't know, 90,000 tweets over um, uh, seven, eight years, whatever it is since I started. And um, the book is made up with a selection of uh, tweets and images um, that I've been doing for um, the past few years. And it's again, it's kind of how do you pick the ones that A, there's a sense of thematic consistency running through the book, but also uh, kind of would remind people who might have known it from before uh, of things that they might have been fond of or tweets they've liked or images they appreciated. Um, but I think the desire was also, which is it's kind of an experiment in a way, is was to try to test this uh, and Saki was very clear about that, whether this would stand outside of the realm of Twitter, whether it would work with an offline audience and whether it would work as a book at all. Um, so I guess we'll find the answer to that one, but it was just an, for me an interesting experiment to see if that humor would survive the context. Well, there is one called Nine, um, a, a collection of German existentialist tweets that I, I think has done really well and that people enjoy. I think, I mean, to me, I was, I was wondering, am I going to like it in this format? These, these things that I enjoy on Twitter, will I also like reading them in a more static format? And I did in a, in a very different way. Oh, I'm, gl I'm glad to hear that because I, I, I genuinely can't judge it myself. But I can tell you one thing, thing though, since, since, since the subject of kids came out. So I was very proud when I got my first uh, copies. I was like, I'm going to go to my two daughters who are six and nine. And uh, they both read now. And uh, I was, I'm going to give a copy to each one of them. And, um, you know, um, that'll be their copy. And <laughs> I went home and I was like, so girls, do you, do you, do you want to have a, a copy each? Do you want me to sign it for you? And they both looked at me and they were like, no, daddy, it's very boring. <laughs> <laughs> Which was brilliant. And this is like... That's the audience that you really want to test things with. <laughs> yes, well, nothing, nothing like the, the, the contempt of one's own, the, the familiarity and contempt of one's own preteen children, I'm sure. Uh, well, well, listen, do you want to read a couple of them? We were thinking about reading them, but then we thought it'd be much better to ask you to. But my 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 um, my accent is horrible. But yeah, let me let me see what, what I can read. Although I loved your performance of uh, the Uncle Thum one, I I have a terrible singing voice, which I would have loved to be able to do that one. That's I'm so keen on someone actually uh, performing performing that one. Oh, I have okay, a so terrible it's... singing voice too. I'm infamous. <laughs> we should start a club. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay, before I read, I have to tell you also, the other thing that we did for the book is where also the book came from kind of the selection of tweets and thematically how it works is um, I did a stand-up comedy last year in Edinburgh and uh, it was part of a series of Arab-themed nights so at the Edinburgh Comedy Festival and um, 
I was like, I've always wanted to do stand-up comedy, and this opportunity came up, and it was for one night only. And I thought, I, I've got to get it out of my system. I have to do, you know, a comedy routine. So what I did is I trolled through all my uh, Twitter uh, feed and then picked up a, a number of tweets that I then threaded together in a comedy routine uh, that, um, that then I performed. And it was actually a 45-minute long set. And um, a lot of the material here is actually part of that structure of that performance. That's brave to do stand-up. That seems like um, a pretty different way. I mean, like, also, like, a different way of presenting your humor than, like, writing tweets. Like, it's, like, almost the polar opposite. No, I have to say I loved it. It was, like, a, a, it was great because the audience was fantastic, and a lot of them actually knew, you know, knew me very well, followed me on Twitter and knew my stuff. And some of them were, like, told me afterwards I was waiting for that joke to come. That's always like a very positive energy in the crowd. But then about half of the crowd has actually never heard of me before. I was genuinely surprised what made you go and see this uh, unknown person, you know, perform 45 minutes in Edinburgh. And actually it was like, I loved it. It was like a thrill because for me it was a chance to actually, let's try these things. Let's see how they work out with the live audience. And then you discover a dimension. This is going to sound so pretentious. <laughs> but you discover that in like delivery, um, you you assume that some things you assume that you're just gonna rattle through it as almost as if it's a tweet that you read in one go, and then you see that the audience would start laughing about a third of the way in, and then you pause, and then you deliver the second bit, and then they laugh more, and then you deliver the punchline, and then they laugh out, you know, quite. And and there's that performative aspect of it was really amazing, like just kind of learning about that and seeing people's responses. Uh, it was absolutely brilliant. And then I knew that it was sincere because there was a, a two-minute stretch of the performance where, like, everybody was absolutely still. Not a titter, not a teehee, not a smile. It was like, you know, like comedians say, I died. It was like, it was horrible. Like, nothing was <laughs> happening. I was like, this, this audience is genuinely honest because they know the crap material. They're not laughing. They're not even pretending about it. And then I sort of sailed through that and, and continued. And I have to say, it worked, worked out really well. Um, and I think um, this, that's the kind of the nice thing about uh, Twitter is, you know, it pushes you to kind of test this material and get better at your uh, craft, if I can call it that. And everybody's like such a harsh critic. And to, to Twitter's credit is that then the material can be robust enough to be performed, I think. So that was my take from it. Although what I noticed as well is there are things that work very well on Twitter that don't work at all in a live performance. And there are things that you think are quite banal on Twitter that actually depends on the delivery. They might work very well. But still, it does give you a kind of... Because I always am a believer in everything, in, in, in film or TV or comedy. I, I always believe it's always about the writing. And I think the whole crisis in um, mainstream cinema that we have now is because of the writing, not any of the other things. Because on every other aspect, I think people are great at it. Is what we genuinely miss is really good writing, and and I think that's genuinely the secret to everything. So when, when it's it's got to the point now when I watch stand-up comedians, I because I've been doing this for a number of years, I started to appreciate the craft that goes into how not only they write a joke, but they write a, a kind of a series of jokes with a 
with a kind of a theme that runs through it that, that kind of allows them to improvise and do different things. I have huge respect for, for their skill and their craft. So maybe at some point we'll have a Karl Remarks Netflix show. Oh God! <laughs> I wish I, 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 it would be great, but uh, yeah, I, I doubt that I'm, uh, my material would be suitable for a mass audience. It's probably about like 300 people in the world who would appreciate it, and half of them came to my uh, uh, Edinburgh show, and 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 I should do another session for the other half, and that'll be it. <laughs> I don't know. I think you probably are underestimating your audience, but I agree with you that it is a it is a great gift um, to be funny. I like cherish, like you say, like a a a good comedy set, a good film that's mm. like actually got. I mean, I think it's the hardest. It's one of the hardest kinds of writing to do. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know in these. With with what the news and the world is like these days, I'm so happy when I find um, entertainment that is genuinely funny because it feels like um, you know uh, an escape that's kind of like necessary. And then you know, and then your work is sort of like not a full escape because you're actually talking about kind of serious stuff sometimes, but. Uh, but it's a way of talking about it that's like very, very bearable, and so that's nice. Absolutely, I agree. So I've been I've been flicking through this to find things that I could read you, and okay. um, you have to apologize my um, Arabic accent. No, sorry, my Neo-Phoenician accent. <laughs> Wait, come on! You've just told us you've done like a stand-up comedy set. Like you can't be self-conscious about. <laughs> No, I'm not that concerned at, at, at all. At this point, it's, you're, it's, you're, Carl, you're, you're morphing into Karl remarks, right? So, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, I mean, about half of my bit was actually making fun of my accent when I was uh, doing the stand-up comedy, which is always like a crowd pleaser. As an Arab comedian, you can always kind of warm things up by making fun of your accent. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Um, giving you snippets from, and then God created the Middle East and said, let there be breaking news. Uh, can I just say something, though? This comes from a tweet that was, and then God created the Middle East and said, let there be breaking news and analysis. And we couldn't fit all of that on a cover of a book. <laughs> it was just too long for a, for a book. So it, it became and said, let there be breaking news. And to me, that's kind of like doesn't give the full joke, but I'm sure I'm being very kind of pedantic about it now. Yes, well, right. yes, it's true that punditry is certainly half of God's gift to the world through the Middle East, and that is <laughs> that is missing. I agree that that is definitely part of it. Yeah, thanks, thanks for for that. Seriously, because I was like, ah, uh, no, this this kind of could be misconstrued as if because the you know I had to explain the joke, but it was like you know basically talking about the nature of punditry, which obviously you spotted, but. Then, if you stop at breaking news, it might feel like I'm just talking about an inherent tendency of the Middle East to have, you know, problematic politics or whatever, and that's definitely not my intention. So I'm, this is in no kind of particular order. So um, when the Ottomans attacked Vienna, it, it gave Europe a croissant, uh, but when the U.S. invaded Iraq, it gave the Middle East ISIS. Yeah, I like what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> Very honest audience. Okay, let's try this one. Well, remember, um, we've, we've just read them all. I'm joking, I'm joking. Okay, 
So let's see this next one. Um, they should give hurricanes names like Muhammad or Fatima. It would make it much harder for them to enter the U.S. Yeah. But <laughs> um, okay. So this this was actually this one was actually part of my uh, stand-up comedy, right? So like when I travel when I travel abroad now, I just kind of toss my clothes casually into a suitcase. I don't bother folding them on anything because I know that as an Arab, when I get to the airport, they're going to search me very carefully. On the upside, they do like fold all my shirts very carefully afterwards. Now, is that true? No, it's absolutely <laughs> not true. They don't even give you that, that, that service. I'll be happy, you know, if they actually fold them, I'll, I'll happily volunteer as the, uh, you know, the suspect so they can search me. Um, I hate it when people stereotype, stereotype you because of uh, you're an Arab. Um, yesterday, someone asked me to introduce algebra to European languages. I like that one. And the last one, um, so we don't give away all of the book. Maybe I should record it as an audio book. Um, so as a Middle Eastern person, when I visit a museum in Europe, it feels like when you visit friends and see a book that you lent them years ago, proudly displayed in their bookcase. Right. No, no, I was just going to say, do you, do you want me to try to describe the images? <laughs> you know what? I love the images, but I think that we should just let, pe I mean, People I People should have to buy the book, actually. Yeah, I don't feel like if you, I don't want to make you give too much away. Like, I love the six new ways to divide the Middle East and North Africa. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. Um, that's a classic. But I think, yeah, like... Basically, everyone should buy this book, really. It's, it's just a delightful, like, thought-provoking and pleasurable uh, read. And then everybody should follow you on Twitter. And it's a great gift book as well. Mm. Well, thank you. That, that's, that's very good praise. Can I just say, though, I read, I intentionally didn't read the good ones so that people can go and get the book. <laughs> All right, so um, thank you very much for talking with us today. Um, and um, we look forward to uh, your next joke, which I'm sure you'll be cracking within hours, probably. Um, uh, thank you for having me, and, and good luck. I love the podcast. Good luck with it. It's great. Oh, you're Thanks, so Carl. sweet. All right, <laughs> bye, Carl. Bye, take care. Bye. So I thought our first our first ever guest on the podcast that went really well. It did. We, may we have many more? Yeah. Well, we picked a good one, indeed. Um, and so, what else are we going to talk about today? Uh, well, there's a a book that just came out called "The Hundred Best Novels in Translation," and it was assembled by Boyd Tonkin, who used to be the uh, book review editor or the books page editor at the Independent. And when, it, when I first heard about it, I ran a small Twitter poll, since we're on the theme of Twitter, of what are the Arabic novels going to be from this list, from, from the hundred? Because, of course, he's not giving away which novels he's mentioning in his book, because that's the reason you're going to go buy the book. Um, and I, the, the first one I put up at the top, which won the poll, was Tayyip Salah's Seasons of Migrations to the North. Um, the second one I was going to put, I really was going to put the Cairo Trilogy, but I thought it was too, too obvious of a choice, so I put Madoc Valley. 
by Nadine Mahfouz. I love Madaka Ali. Yeah, I, I also thought that if I was going to choose a Mahfouz, that's probably the one that I would choose. Um, and, uh, and then I had uh, Saeed the Pasoptimist, which uh, did not do very well in the polling, despite some people writing and saying they, they would choose it, they love that book, but they didn't think it was going to make this top 100 list. And Munif, um, Cities of Salt Quintet, which is, I suppose... Um, sorry, uh, by the Saudi writer Abdurrahman uh, Munif? Yes, okay. sorry. Um, which only the first of the Cities of Salt Quintet was translated and it was received badly and it has this infamous bad review from Updike when it came out. Although then later it was included in this, a book that was called The Hundred Best Novels of Africa. No, it can't be of Africa since he's Saudi and lived in Jordan and many other places. The Hundred Best Novels of something or other. It was another Hundred Best Novels, um, but I put it in there for that reason. Anyway, far and away. Um, Tayyip Solo was who people thought it would be. And I, I guess when I did this, I thought that the, that the book was going to be surprising in some way. That, um, that in order to make a list like this, that the point is that you're bringing people new information, you're telling them about new works they might not know about. Sorry, remind me, the guy who's made this list is the literary editor. He was the literary editor. He, I think he was, the, then he was a, he was also the so guy, the literary editor at the... Independent. Okay. Then he also founded the Independent, Independent Foreign Fiction Prize, the IFFP, which ran for a number of years in the UK, and it was the big translated fiction prize. And then okay. that melded with the Man Booker International, which, um, when it changed from a prize that was about a writer's whole oeuvre, which the last time that was 2015, I believe, into a single book prize for the best translated book of the year, he moved. They, he, that melded with the IFFP. So he's definitely somebody who has a long history with translated literature. Um, I think um, most of the critique has been about whose translated literature is this. Um, uh, the number of Novels by Women was small. Uh, this is uh, one of the critiques uh, that most of them are from Europe, most of them are translated from the French. Uh, uh, it, at least that's what people say. I, I, all I've seen is people have sent me scanned pages of everything that has to do with the Arabic uh, selections. People have sent you the scanned pages of his book that have to do with yes. the Arabic entries? Yes. I love how Arablet has this like network of like <laughs> How else you know, would I know anything? Passionate informers who are like... <laughs> because I'm so excitable, I think, you know, so people want to tell you something if you're like, Oh my God, tell me! But they didn't send you the table of contents, so we don't no, know that's true. what the whole no, overall most of these, is. Most of the... I have read a number of reviews of it. Most, you know, it's Proust and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. It's things that you would expect. And I think almost every reviewer said there's nothing really I would... or a handful of things that I would throw off. You know, Sebald is on there, obviously you have to have him. Um, and, you know, you wouldn't want to throw off Tayyip Saleh or Nagim Mahfoud either. Um, but those are the two Arab writers. Those are the two included. Arab writers. And, and we can and sort of guess that comparatively probably there's like also just like a couple African writers and a couple Asian writers. Like, it's mostly European writers. Yes, is, mm -hmm. and, uh, that's okay. The two critiques are well, I mean, those are, those are the two critiques I've seen. I mean, my, my number one critique is 
Why do we buy this? There's, why don't we just put it online as a listicle? And then my number two critique is, having read the sort of book entry on uh, Seasons of Migration to the North and the Cairo Trilogy, is these didn't sound like books he loved. Um, uh, some of them, people said, oh, he was so passionate about this book X. Proust, maybe, I don't know, that, that I wanted to go out and buy it. Although, surely the person who wrote that review has already read In Search of Lost Time. Oh, you would be surprised how few people have ever read In Search of Lost Time, don't you think? I don't know. I, w I, I don't want to. I would, I, would, I, would, I would not at all make the assumption that like every, every literary reviewer has actually read it. Okay, well, maybe that's true, but I, I don't know about that. But in any case, he did. It, it felt like he ha hadn't read these books. And um, Savad and Nashwa, two Arab lit um, friends, two friends of Arab lit, who who went to this uh, to the book launch, um, asked him about his Arabic selections, and he had said that he relied on a, an expert witness sort of person. And so these didn't feel like books he cared about at all in the sort of book book report about them. And then at the end, it says that the translation is fantastic and that it captures all of the nuance of, um, of the book. And this was the other thing that really uh, needled me about it, um, that, well, how, how on earth does he know it? If he's quoting somebody, then please, I want to know who makes this claim that, that the all of Lauren Kennedy plus William Hutchins plus, I can't remember who else, translation of the Cairo Trilogy is is, is the definitive a translation of the Cairo Trilogy rather than... Well, it's the definitive translation. Well, it's okay, it's the only, only one. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's not a bad translation. I mean, it reads pretty well, I would say, although I, would, I think it's way overdue for a new translation. It's I would absolutely love to see overdue for a new translation. And I take think... Take a crack at it. I mean, certainly Edward Said has written um, a strong critique of the translation. And... Yes, and many of these books that were, at the time, AUC Press was looking for people to translate Nafuz's novels. They said, we couldn't find anyone who was capable of doing it. So they put it together like four different people working together. And, and then, I believe, for the trilogy, it was um, Jackie Onassis who edited it all together into one seamless read. Um, Jackie Onassis? Yes, Jackie oh. Onassis, who was at the time... Jackie Onassis and working as book editor. I, um, oh, I'm 97.3% on that one. Wow. Okay. Well, it reads pretty well, especially for something that was translated by multiple people. But I get your point is, you know, so yeah, if, if he sort of, someone's told him that it's well translated, clearly he doesn't speak every language that all these no. books are translated from, so he's going to have to rely. I mean, frankly, one assumes that any book that's on the hundred best novels in translation will have been very well translated, because if it wasn't, like, it shouldn't even be on the list, right? Yes, like, he, a, he does say in the introduction uh, something to the extent that there were novels that he wanted to include, but the translation was not up to snuff. He also said he heard about Leg Over Leg by Shidyak. Uh, translated by Humphrey, too late to include in the list of 100, but it would be something that he would have considered. Um, but that doesn't mean, to me, I'm like, well, did you love it? Did you read it and you felt like it set your hair on fire or not? I guess, to me, we already know what these, th these books are part of the literary canon. Uh, I can find that out from a listicle on the internet. I know how to use Google. 
So what, what I want to know is, what lit you up? What, what was part of your book reading journey? What's exciting? Yeah, I agree. And I mean, also, like you said, if the choices are sort of the most um, obvious, because they are sort of masterpieces, but sort of like very familiar, well-known ones, then you could just like Google best book translated from French or Russian or Arabic or whatever and arrive at probably something very close to this list. So if that if he's not adding sort of some compelling personal insight about why you you know you should read this book or I mean it seems like it would be much more worthwhile doing like a, a sort of the hundred or I don't know it doesn't have to be a hundred but you know books in translation that people haven't heard of or don't, don't right, exactly. aren't aware of. Although that's a different, if you, you know, it seems like this is the kind of book of someone who wants to sort of like lay their claim to a certain... I have read the important books that are available in translation. Yeah, and sort of, you know, I am an important literary editor and here's my important book about other important books. And, you know, like... Here it is, like, consult this for the rest of your life. Um, it's, it's, it seems like a little bit of an obvious addition, but I don't know, maybe the kind of people who buy it are the kind of people who are like, I will have on my coffee table this very important book about other important books. I don't know. I, the appeal is very limited to me, I have to say. There's been genre. a lot of discussion of it, but that also may be because he's such a major part of the literary industry in, in the UK. Because there have been a number of pieces written about it, including the critique of why aren't there more women's books. And at the event, I think he said, well, there are just more men writers. Um, well, that's actually and, true, historically. I and, mean, Right. So then the question becomes, are, am I just reiterating this sort of received canon that you can find on Google? I mean, to me, also the question, a slightly more provocative question, is like, how much can you, um, you know, in the desire to have more women included, like, how much can you push against the books that are actually out there? Like, I mean, making, the, there's a question of like, is this list making exercise worthwhile at all? You know, <laughs> because in a way, all it does is like rile people up who feel you know, justly or, or not, but like that, you know, important voices are being left out. And like it just has like very limited added value. Like it's sort of, you know, people who want to read can figure out what to read. They don't need like a, literally like a book length book list. Like it's so, well, I think you, know. That, you know, you can get sort of a listicle from the BBC or you something. Can, I mean, you can just figure it out. Like, you can go to the library or you can go to a bookstore. I mean, you can figure out if you're looking for good things to read uh, in any category. So, but leaving that aside, I mean, so, you know, again, this question of, like, should there be more women writers included? I mean, ideally, yes, but, you know, the four options that you gave people to choose from also happen That's to true. all be by men. And I don't Although I was giving them tongue-in-cheek, I was giving them in the sort of which will be the most obvious choices sort of me. I don't mean that you couldn't put Huda Barakat's Stone of Laughter on there after it's retranslated by Marilyn Booth and not in its current edition. You know, I'm not saying that there's no... 
But I run into the struggle in the in the literary field that I cover the most, which is Arabic literature, that like when I start rattling off my favorite books, they are overwhelmingly written by men. And you know, I, I there are some women writers I like, but I if I made my top 10 list, I think it would be almost all male. I think I did ask you in 2010 for your five books to read before you die list, and I do believe they were all men. Yeah, and so... I um, only re I remember you had Yusuf Idris and Ibrahim Akuni. Yeah, and of course, there would be, if it's from the region, there would be Mahfouz. Um, there would probably be beer in the Sukkur Club. Right, it I think I was asking for translations, but yes. Um, Kony and Idris and Mahmoud Darwish probably. Mm. Uh, I mean, of the ones that are like my favorite, favorite books, they just don't happen to be written by women. There are female authors I appreciate, but uh, from, you know, and I right. think partly that is a numbers game. They're just a lot fewer. And right. in the generation, if you're... Or looking, have been until relatively recently. Yeah. I think if you're looking at contemporary authors, you'll find a lot of women popping out um, who are doing really interesting things. Uh, but if you're looking at, you know, uh, Latifa Isayat's era, mm -hmm. you know, there's her who wrote, I think, a really some really interesting work. Um, but yeah, there's... And particularly when we're talking about what there is to choose from in translation as well if we're putting that lens on it right. additionally. I mean, actually what I would say is I would put Fatima Marnisi on any list. If I'm a, if it's a, if it doesn't have to be fiction, mm. I think she's a fantastic writer. Mm -hmm. Spectacular. Um, I'm trying to think. And then generally speaking, like two, two of the, my contemporary writers that I like the most um, are Hilary Mantel and Elena Ferrante. I don't feel like at the current moment there are better male writers than women writers. No, of, certainly not. You know, working. So maybe it's just a historical question. Yeah, well, also you can assume that much women's writing was not... Well, at least I know this about the Arabic tradition. I don't know. And much women's writing was lost, you know, in terms of the manuscript tradition. Probably that's true of other languages as well. I mean, much writing was lost. You mean never published? No, uh, that it was circulated in manuscript form, and then all the copies don't exist anymore. There are, you know, and then some some of it, it's there in somebody's library somewhere underneath, you know, 40 other piles of stuff, and people are still discovering. Yeah. But in any case, he's talking specifically about novels, so in that case, leg over leg is really... Shidyak it's would not, not a novel. Shidyak, New novels. He lived in England. He uh, he lived. You know, he lived in France. He knew his contemporary writers. Uh, he read in multiple languages, and he didn't write a novel. Yeah. What we would consider, he, he wrote something that we would certainly consider now a novel, because at the moment we consider anything that is not that is not non-fictional and that is made out of prose to be a novel. I mean, our definition has changed over time. But this overall, this question of like the, 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 the critique of the list is just sort of like a critique of, uh, of a canon, basically. And I mean, I get the question, okay, the question is, what, 
What is the point of the canon? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, and well, I mean, I to a certain extent, I I agree. I mean, whether it's a question of like why is the focus on only this one literary form, the novels, say, right? Or you know why the focus only on you know from certain parts of the world, or you know why is it so overwhelmingly male? Um, I mean, this sort of criticism has been around for a while. Right. I'm sure we'll continue, like, it will just continue. Right. I suppose I'm interested in a way because I'm interested in, I would like to see a, uh, somebody's journey of, journey in Arabic literature. But why don't you write that book? You're perfect to write that book. Someone's journey through, like, like, <laughs> like, write a, you're passionate about these books. You have a really broad, like, you wouldn't just talk about the obvious ones. That's your book to write. <laughs> I'm serious. Maybe, maybe. I mean, cause, cause this, this, this guy isn't gonna write it. Probably <laughs> not, since he didn't even seem to really care about seasons of migration or kind of yeah. a trilogy. And I think that is a nice way to approach a literary field, like to write a, if you're gonna do a sort of guide to reading, uh, if you're gonna, if you're gonna create some sort of Canon almost has like a bad rap now because it seems like exclusive or whatever. But if you're, if you're going to do a reading guide, then, then write it as a book where you can really kind of explain what drew you to this, what drew you to that, like, you know, um, what the appeal of different works is, why something is there or not there. Yeah, and your personal relationship with it. Yeah, no, that, that's, that was, I guess that was the book I was kind of hoping that this would be. But it's, it's, it's not, it's much more of a sort of field guide to the best. And and so he has no particular interest in, I mean, you're also like, you're interested in literature from a particular part of the world, right? Like, I think he doesn't have any particular interest in Arabic literature. I guess not. No. It's shocking to me. <laughs> there was something exciting about uh, happening in the world of Arabic literature that I wanted to also to talk about which is that uh, Amazon, on their Kindle app, has now finally introduced Arabic novels to, to, to read as ebooks. So and if I pick up my Kindle right now, can I download an Arabic novel? Yeah, yeah, you can. I'm uh, there test this. Okay. <laughs> That's kind of exciting. There were some people um, who said that they couldn't get it, and they showed me a screenshot of the message that they got, which said it's not available in your region. Um, but I didn't have any problem ordering off the site. And there are, they said 12,000. I didn't actually go through and count. But there, you know, in some of the ebook sites, particularly some of the very early ones, they were just things that were already in the public domain and, you know, books from the three publishing houses that the guy running the ebook site is friends with. Some of them were difficult to use. I mean, the, the great... How do you change your font to Arabic? On, on the Kindle? Just, if you go to Arabic Kindle books, you can order them. It's available in, through English as well. So you just download it. Oh, I don't know how you're... I, I ordered it off the iPad app, Kindle app. Oh. I ordered it on the internet, and then I had it sent to my Kindle Had app. it sent to your Kindle? Because I don't know on my Kindle how to, how to get the font into Arabic. Um... So it, this, they have uh, contemporary best, I, the pricing was a mystery to me. Um, 
Saudat Sanusi's Mama Hisses Mice, which is was the novel he wrote after his International Prize for Epic Fiction winning uh, Van Bustock, was ten dollars, and then uh, Ibrahim Aslan's last novel was two dollars and twelve cents or something, which seemed to me an amazing deal. I mean, so there were a bunch of them that uh, were great, affordable. Uh, the font is nice; they work well. Uh, plus, if you, it has the same functionality as in English, where if you press on a word, uh, it calls up a dictionary fun, uh, function. That's very useful. Um, it, they also, if you scroll right, it has Bing uh, translate, but um, it's not very functional. Um, but uh, there were some really excellent books, and with all the distribution problems that bedevil Arabic literature, um, and how, how many people read pirated PDFs not because they're even trying to get around the system, but because they have just no other way to get new uh, literature. Mm -hmm. I think this, this is a big deal. And, you know, I, I'm really not Team Amazon. I, I would, you know, I would love it to be somebody else. But on the other hand, it is something where I know I can because I just hit click and boom, I have the book instantly. Yes, that's the whole that's the whole point. They make it very, very easy for you to buy things. Um, well, so I can't do it right now because I don't have Arabic listed for some, as a language. Like I just went into the language settings and I cannot select Arabic on my Kindle. Okay, but well, so I guess you could people, do it through any laptop. Through any laptop. Or maybe if you had a more up-to-date Kindle than mine. Okay. And then you can send it to an iPad, send it to your Kindle, send it to your computer. Mm -hmm. So all you need really is to be somewhere where your credit card is accepted by Amazon. I mean, you need that functionality as well as right. access to right. computer. You don't. I mean, I, I don't think it matters who, where you are, but it's possible that credit cards that are based in certain countries they have. I mean, uh, uh, they accepted me. I'm. You know, but me and you have an American credit card. I just wonder. Yeah. I just want. I mean, you know, because online payment is still sort of like yes, it a is. relatively new phenomenon. But it, it's and then it's could coming. could be, for instance, they found the way around that was to let people use their phone credit in order to buy books. So that is a way that um, that some ebook publishers have gotten around this. Uh, I think. Amazon will initially be appealing to markets where there's already very high penetration, like Saudi Arabia, um, Arabs yeah. in Europe and the United States. But that's cool. That's very cool. I mean, it'll. So you've been browsing already? I have. I've been buying. I bought uh, Azadine Shukri Fisher's new book to start with. Okay. Because I wanted it, and it was not at the Casa Book Fair, and I will be in Cairo in October, but that's a long time. What's it called? It's, you know, it's All That Rubbish is, is his latest right. one. Um, and uh, there were a lot of them that I wanted to buy. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to, because it is so easy right. to uh, rack up a large debt on your credit card. But that is great, because because you and I still basically operate on, like, we we literally end up buying books when we, tra when we physically travel to Beirut or to Cairo half the time is right. when we like get a novel that's been published recently so exactly if they're going up you know uh, yeah that's there that's were a number useful. of recent releases so that was really 
Is the book of sleep? I should look for the book of sleep. You know. Oh yeah, I didn't. I didn't look for that. I've been wanting to read that. Okay. This is exciting. It is. All right. Well, cool. Well, so we get to end the podcast on a kind of like uh, happy note. Never <laughs> happens. Plus, buy Carl's book. Yeah, actually, this was like a very good upbeat. Uh, episode where we, we just, just like didn't talk about any of the bad stuff that's happening. You did bring up Trump, though. I did say his name once. Yeah, sorry. Um, all right. Well, uh, I think that about wraps it up. Yes. Um, and I'll see you again in two weeks. That we will. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Zoom walks into a bar, walks into a bar, walks into a bar, walks into a bar.